Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. Good morning, everyone. Great to be with you this morning. Uh, We are continuing in our series through the book of Genesis. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, uh, why don't you go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 1, uh, verse 27, and we'll pick up there in a moment. We've got uh, this week and next to uh, kind of round out our study of humanity from uh, Genesis chapters 1 and 2. What did God intend for humanity from the beginning? Uh, And after that, we'll have uh, Christmas, of course, and then we'll kind of be off and running through the biblical storyline in all of its drama and beauty. Uh, We pick up this morning, though, in uh, verse 27 with the creation of human beings. Here's what it says. This is chapter 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. I'll ask you to join me in a quick prayer. Uh, Jesus, thank you for the words of Scripture uh, that um, you inspired Moses to write, and thank you that after thousands of years, we still have them in our hand, and they speak of something uh, true and beautiful and deep and rich about humanity and the human purpose. And we come to you, uh, Jesus, this morning, Uh, in a sense, as scattered and broken people uh, who um, curiously have to kind of relearn uh, their purpose, relearn what what it is you intended for humanity from the beginning. And so to that end, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill this place, that you would open up our hearts and minds to what it is you want to hear this morning, and that we would be reminded of your beauty and majesty and grace as we contemplate uh, what it looks like to regain Uh, what's been lost. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing that God does after creating humanity was to bless them. The very first things that are true of human beings is that they are made in the image of God and they are blessed. And after blessing them, God gives them this first command. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth. Make babies. Make more of yourselves to fill this temple-like garden and increase its borders until it spreads and one day covers the entire earth. And of all the ways that babies could be made, God decided to make it really fun. But before we get there, I want to point out two questions that are often raised by the text. First, is the command to be fruitful and multiply a universal command for all human beings? And second, is multiplication the only biblical reason for sex? We will take each in turn. 
First, uh, this command given to Adam and Eve, is it a universal command for all people for all time? Are all of us called to this? And the short answer, in my opinion, is no. As the scriptures open, Adam and Eve are in a very unique spot. As far as I can tell, they are the only human beings in existence, and God has given them a massive task of taking care of, of working and filling the entire earth. Hence, part of the early call of humanity was to multiply and fill the earth. And so you see God give this command to Adam and Eve, and then just a few chapters later, after the flood, God actually says something very similar to Noah. This is Genesis chapter 9. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, this is post-flood, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. And he goes on to say, hey, rule over the animals. It's sort of this recapitulation, almost, of what we saw in Genesis. And so we see this theme operating early on, that humanity is to multiply and fill the earth. But the further you get into Scripture, the less relevant it becomes. At some point... People actually do spread out and fill the earth, and you end up with lots of image bearers on every livable continent. Uh, Fast forward a bit into the modern age, and we have a whopping 7.7 billion people and counting. We uh, add every year 100 million people to the world's population, that's roughly seven million a month who are added. And every single day, humanity gives birth to roughly 400,000 new babies. That means just today, there will be almost half a million babies who are born. Which, if I'm doing my math right, is about one every, or about four to five every second. Four to five every second of every single day. For all of the ways that humanity has failed, we sure seem to have figured this one out. (laughs) Was God's command to fill the earth? achievable? I think so. At some point, if you make enough humans, the earth will be filled. And of course, we could have the debate as to what qualifies as full. Is that two million people? Is it two billion people? Is it 10 billion? I'm not sure. Uh, But I'm going to go ahead and say Well done, Adam and Eve. Mission accomplished. I think 8 billion ticks the box uh, by my estimate. Uh, The issue at hand, which we see early in the scriptures, is no longer that we have a lack of humans to uh, work the ground, so to speak, to shape uh, creation in partnership with God. 
But uh, because of the current ecological state of our planet, you've got people on the one side saying, hey, there are too many people in the world. In fact, it is irresponsible to have lots of children. Or on the very extreme end, it is irresponsible to have children reacting to the state of our planet. Then you've got certain groups of Christians on the other end saying, hey, it is my God-given duty to be fruitful and multiply. I am commanded to have lots of kids. And then you've got others uh, within the church who maybe can't have kids, or maybe they don't want to have kids, and they're not quite sure what to make of it all. And so, uh, the way I would sum everything up is that Adam and Eve and early humans were blessed and they were commanded to be fruitful and multiply. Clearly, that command is fulfillable, and from what I can tell, it's probably been fulfilled. I don't see this command as universal for all people for all time. And if it really was a universal command placed on individuals, then it seems rather curious that Jesus never made any attempt to fulfill it. So, if you can't have kids or you don't want to have kids, I see absolutely no problem with that. Jesus was single, he didn't have kids, and he was perfect, and perfectly fulfilled, I might add. And I'm guessing he got eight hours of sleep every single night. (laughs) So, uh, don't feel any pressure from the biblical side uh, to have children or to have lots of children. I don't think it's unbiblical to have children. My wife and I are expecting our third any day now. Uh, The Bible says that children are a gift and a blessing, but I don't see scripture issuing a universal command uh, to be placed on individuals that you should have lots of children or have children at all. So if you want to, awesome. And if you don't want to, Awesome. So long as you have a healthy biblical view of children, you're good. Which brings us very conveniently to question number two. In the text of Genesis, God first, God's first command is to be fruitful and multiply. And that is to be accomplished through sexual intimacy between Adam and Eve. God could have made human beings grow up out of the ground. He could have hired storks to deliver them out of the clouds. He could have designed this any way he wanted, but he didn't choose any of those options. He actually designed a rather unique act which would be necessary in order to multiply, and he designed it rather brilliantly. Throughout the long story of church history, there have been a variety of attitudes towards sexual intimacy. 
sometimes the church has conveyed a very positive message regarding sex and intimacy, and other times, not so much. The church has always believed uh, that sex is only to be undertaken within the bounds of biblical marriage, but people have not always agreed on what sex is for or whether or not it should be celebrated. Which brings us to our final question. What does the Bible say about sex? What's it for? And a quick survey of the Bible would suggest at least four reasons, at least for sexual intimacy. The first one, if you're taking notes, is multiplication. The first thing that God says to Adam and Eve is, have at it, be intimate with one another, go and make babies, you're naked and unashamed, you'll figure out what to do. And God provided a way for that to happen. So, multiplication, be fruitful and multiply. The second thing is that we see in scripture is that sex is one means by which a husband and wife might comfort one another. Uh, for example, we're told that after King David loses his son, it says that David comforted his wife Bathsheba and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son and they named him Solomon. So there's this element of uh, comforting in times of grieving or loss. Uh, next, if you're taking notes, sex is for pleasure. And it's worth stating the obvious, that humans didn't design sex. God did. We didn't discover some mischievous activity that we weren't supposed to engage in. God designed it, and he designed it to be a pleasurable experience. We were sexual before we were sinful. And pleasure is a part of God's design. And if you don't believe me, or you're convinced that the Bible is somehow down on sex, I'd invite you to read Song of Solomon. It's a short book, right in between Ecclesiastes and Isaiah, and the entire thing is a poetic account of a couple on this journey through romance and engagement and into marriage. And from start to finish, it is highly sexually charged, and the couple speaks about their attraction and their desires and what they want to do with one another once they're married, and it follows this couple straight through into their wedding night and the intimacy that they engage in there. And from start to finish, it is a celebration of romance and intimacy and sex as something that is holy and good and from God. And I would quote it, but it's actually pretty embarrassing to quote. <laughs> I'll spare you today. So, uh, God isn't down on sex, he designed it, he made it to be pleasurable, and not only that, but he made it to be powerful as well. Look down, if you would, to Genesis 2, uh, verse 21. This is after Adam is created. We read this account. 
Verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why, pay attention, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. In marriage, a man and woman leave their father and mother, ideally. They leave their family of origin, which in the ancient world was a huge deal. Your family was everything. What on earth could compel me to leave my family of origin? Well, God has has provided a way. Family was everything, but God's intent is that humans would not stay in their family of origin, but rather they would be drawn to start brand new families as a husband and wife in which they are bonded together in the deepest levels. So much so that the text says that the two become one flesh. And this is where everything starts to fall into place. The word for one in one flesh is echad in Hebrew. And echad spoke of a deep oneness that happens when two people were fused together at the deepest level, when the lines between one and the other began to blur. Where does one start and the other end? I'm not Sure. Echad is also used to describe the Trinity or the deep oneness of God in three persons. God is Father, He is Spirit, He is Son, but He is one. God is Echad. Where does one start and the other end? I'm not sure. It's a beautiful mystery. They are three persons with one essence. And thus, God is a community of persons endlessly loving one another. And out of this community of eternal love, God creates. And he creates image bearers who are then to join him in this community of love, with him and with one another. How fitting then that a husband and wife are called to join with one another on the deepest levels, to become echad in all of the ways that they can. And sex and intimacy is actually an important part of that process. Sex is powerful, and it is designed to make the two into one. It is a nuclear, dynamic, bonding agent 
in which people come to know each other on the deepest level. It is a spiritual act as well as a physical one which bonds two people together holistically. That is physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Which is why lifelong marriage is the only relationship deemed powerful enough and strong enough to contain this raw, uh, fierce, powerful, bonding thing. It's the only appropriate place for two human beings to bond at the deepest level because that bond that's being formed was actually intended to last a lifetime. And yet, as we survey the landscape of our culture and our individual lives, it doesn't take very long to see the ways in which we have massively departed from this vision for sexual intimacy. The culture is quick to assume that God is either unknowable or non-existent, which means that humanity is largely assumed to be an accident, adrift in the universe. And if that's true, then the point of our lives must be uh, to seek out pleasure or some sense of fulfillment in the short, fleeting, accidental lives that we have in an otherwise meaningless universe. And if you run sexual intimacy through that lens, it is no surprise that you get a sexual ethic that is almost completely inverted from the biblical one. Uh, sex, in the agnostic atheist worldview, is reduced down to this flat, sort of two-dimensional thing. It is purely physical. It is just a body and a body, nothing more. It's something we do for fun on a Saturday night. Sex is stripped of its meaning and its depth. It is flattened. It is uh, commercialized and packaged up to be bought and sold. And when that happens, when we buy into the cultural narrative and make sex a purely physical activity done only for pleasure, then everything else that God intended it to be suffers in the process. And we could run through each of these in... Whoa, I'll face this way. We could run through each of these in turn. When sex is done purely for fun and outside of marriage, then at some point or another, it accidentally creates new life. And the cultural way, the cultural norm of dealing with that new life is abortion. And as Americans, we have them performed in their millions. Every year, a great sacrifice is made on the altar of sex. When it comes to comfort and pleasure, the, culturally, the culture actually promises that sex will be those things. But curiously, the more we sleep around, the less comforted we feel, and in the long run, the less pleasure we will experience. The culture says, hey, more people equals more pleasure. But experience shows the opposite. 
In fact, studies show that those with the least sexual satisfaction are young, unmarried people who sleep with multiple partners. And, and that's the American dream. And, and they're the least satisfied. It takes increasing input in, in that dream. It takes more and more along the way, and yet you feel less and less as you go. It turns out that the more you sleep around, the less comforted you feel and the less pleasure you experience. For those who have taken economics, you get diminishing marginal return. When it comes to bonding and becoming one, the culture will deny that sex does that at all. But whether you uh, deny that reality or embrace it, the truth still remains. Sex is a bonding act. And when your partner leaves, whether it's the next morning or the next month or the next year, there is a ripping that occurs. And so within the cultural dream, what you get is a bonding and ripping and bonding and ripping until you find yourself scattered across a landscape of people. Sex actually becomes, over time, an empty gesture that, that hollows you out and leaves us less fulfilled than when we started. And the effect on conscience and soul along the way is catastrophic. In the end, if you go that route, you will either feel hurt or numb. And in either case, you will feel hollow. It seems that we've taken a good gift from God and we've turned it into a God. And, and now we come to worship it as an idol. And we see the devastating effects of this. The culture promises that as we come to worship sex as a God, that we will be fulfilled, that we will be free. It says, go, experience, chase down this freedom. And yet as we do, we find ourselves curiously tied up in bondage. We are promised freedom but what we receive is slavery instead. What we get is a sad and unfulfilling life of bonding and ripping and bonding and ripping and searching and feeling unfulfilled. And in the end, far too often, we find ourselves numb and unsatisfied and yet curiously compelled to continue. Brothers and sisters, that is the very definition of slavery. And the scriptures say that you are slaves to the one that you obey. Somehow, this good gift has been turned into an enslaving God that we feel compelled to worship. Because in the eyes of the culture, 
Uh, sex is no longer a deeply spiritual act designed for oneness of husband and wife. It is now a purely physical activity that you can engage in with whoever you want, whenever you want. And I am all too familiar with this mindset because this is the culture that I was raised in. I grew up in what I would call a secular atheist home. It was loving, uh, to be sure, but completely devoid of God. And so when it came to sex, I had the narrative of the culture saying, the more the better. And I had the narrative of some responsible adult saying, well, but be safe. Throw in alcohol, youth, hormones, some bad friends, and you get the picture. By the time I figured out who Jesus was, I had years' worth of experiences that shaped my thoughts and my mind and my heart into something that was miles away from God's intent. I had become deeply deceived on this issue. In fact, I think I was more deceived here than probably any other issue that I've encountered. Because nowhere does the Bible and the culture differ so markedly as when it comes to sex and intimacy. And I know full well the effects of the culture's version of sexuality on your body and mind and soul because I have experienced far too much of it firsthand. And my guess is that many of you have as well. I mean, how often do we talk about sex and intimacy on a Sunday? Maybe once in a year? Maybe. How often are we confronted with the culture's version of sex and intimacy? Every day? Every hour sometimes? I mean, we are inundated with the cultural narrative. And you throw in deception and a lack of guidance, and the overwhelming weight of temptation, and a couple friends who are running the wrong way. And the result is that few of us will make it to marriage as virgins, myself included, and I'm guessing that all of us have seen and done things that we've come to regret. This is the air that we breathe. We are soaked in this Stuff We have almost been universally exposed to pornography, many of us at a very young age. Uh, many of us uh, have engaged in sex with people that we shouldn't have. Uh, too many of us have had abortions or encouraged someone else to have one. Too many of us are part of the devastating numbers and statistics on sexual assault, sexual abuse, and taking advantage of others. I mean, if you add up in this room the addiction, the abuse, the scars, the history, the experiences, we are a hot mess, are we not? And oftentimes, the garden feels like it's about a million miles away. If Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed, 
then the mantra of our modern day culture is that we are naked and ashamed. Or worse yet, naked and numb. And my intent in examining God's heart for sexual intimacy is not to shame us. God knows we don't need any more of that. It's not to accuse or condemn because I am as condemnable as anyone else in this room. But my heart is rather to call us back, to be reminded of what God intended in the, be- in the beginning and to call us back. Because as a young man and a new Christian, I had to be called back. I needed someone to reach in uh, to my shame and my bondage and my regrets and my confusion and to remind me all over again what it was that God intended from the beginning and to invite me not to try harder or to do better or to clean myself up, but to invite me to the foot of the cross to invite me to be the recipient of God's love and God's blessing and God's cleansing and God's righteousness and God's healing touch. Over the course of a few verses, if we were to keep reading, you would see that Adam and Eve rebel against God. They recognize that they are naked, and in the presence of their sin and nakedness, they feel shame. And what God does is really interesting to me. He goes to them, he seeks them out, and he clothes them. He doesn't come to condemn or to accuse. He actually sees them in their sin and their nakedness and their shame and his impulse is to cover that for them. Here, let me cover your shame. Here, let me cover your sin. Here, let me cover your embarrassment. And the New Testament picks up on that. It says that Jesus comes in love and grace, not to the religious elite, but to the broken, to the lost, to the hurting, to the shamed, to the prostitutes, to the tax collectors. And he clothes them in his righteousness, which he has every right to do. He comes in his love and his grace, and he says, hey, you are no longer a slave. You are no longer worthy of condemnation. You are a new creation. You are in Christ. Behold, the old has gone. The new has come. You are not called to clean yourself up before you come to Christ. You are called, first and foremost, to come to Christ and to allow Him to do His work in you. It's His righteousness. It's His strength. It's His power. 
It's his cleansing. It's his freedom that he brings. From start to finish, we look to God in this. But as we close, here are a few practical things that we can do in the process, almost in partnership with God and what he wants to do. And the first, if you're taking notes, is to repent which is kind of this loaded religious term nowadays that has a ton of baggage. Uh, The initial imagery is actually quite simple. It simply means to turn back, to turn away from our idols and our habits and our darkness, to turn away from your own junk and toward God himself. We renounce the old as a means of embracing the new. And then we take practical steps to to implement our new desires. For some of you, that means getting new friends or changing your environment or putting restrictions on your phone or your computer or or ending the unhealthy relationship in which you find yourself endlessly stuck. Uh, Part of repentance or turning away is doing what you can to remove the obstacles that you can't stop tripping over. It's part of that process of dying to the old self so that we might be alive to God. Uh, Second, if you're taking notes, is that we confess We say out loud what it is that we're up against. Sexual sin entraps us, all of us, and it thrives in the dark. In the dark, it feels unbeatable, insurmountable, but when you bring it into the light, It is exposed for the thing that it is. It loses its power over you. And so we are committed, rather than sitting in darkness and in fear and thinking, this thing has conquered me, we commit to the simple process of dragging it into the light, of bringing it before Christ and community and speaking it out loud. And you will be amazed at what happens when you take this thing, which some of you have been carrying for years, and in the simplest way you know how, you speak it out loud. Hey, here's what I've done. Here's what I'm in. Here's what I'm up against. Here's what I can't shake. Here's what's been done to me. And God is faithful right then and there to begin the process of breaking the power of that thing of breaking the ties and the bonds that hold you back. Finally, we embrace new creation. So we turn from the old in repentance. We speak out loud the thing that we are up against. You can do that to the prayer team, with your missional community, with a friend that you trust. I really don't care who it is as long as you trust them and you're bringing it before God and someone else. But this is the final step, and in some ways, uh, it can end up being the most important. And this is that after we've done those things, we turn from the old, we speak it out loud, but then we embrace new creation. We embrace the reality 
that in Christ, God has made you into a new creation. The scriptures say that God has brought us from death to life. Uh, That our old self was actually nailed to the cross with Jesus. It was crucified and then it was buried. When you come to Christ, the old you in those old patterns that we inherited from the world. That old you is not told to clean yourself up or to do better or to try harder. No, the old you is put to death. Buried. Gone. And just as the old you was joined with Christ in his crucifixion and burial, the the new you in Christ, is actually tied up in his resurrection. Jesus now says that you are the first fruits of that future kingdom of God. You are a new creation. And so when we face temptations, whether it's uh, online or in person, when you are confronted and inundated with the culture's version of sexuality, the best, best path forward is to simply acknowledge that you are a new creation. You take those thoughts captive. You see that temptation for what it is. And you say, more or less, hey, this doesn't make sense because this isn't who I am. I have a new identity now. I'm part of God's family and God's kingdom and therefore all this other junk that made perfect sense before, it just doesn't make sense anymore. I've been bought with the blood of Christ. I am something different now and I know where true life is found. Stand firm in that truth And God will lead you into a greater victory than you ever thought possible. The scriptures say, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And that God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. And so we look to God, we rest in God, and we stand firm in the truth that in Christ you are a new creation. Would you stand with me? As we end, I want to read a passage of scripture over us as we uh, head into communion. And I want this to just be a reminder of uh, who we are and what God has done for us. Uh, And just as an invitation, if you have yet to give your life to Jesus, if you have yet to really die to the old and embrace who Christ is, Um, That's the invitation. If we stay in our old self and we don't come to him, we can have all the idealistic thoughts in, in the world, but it's just not going to be reality. What we need is to actually die to the old self and come alive to the new. And God is central in bringing that about. This is Ephesians chapter two. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Not suffering, you were dead in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, 
the Spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. You were dead, and all of us were following the wrong voice. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. All of us lived there. No one in this room has a right to judge. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. It's not up to you. It's not about your moral record. It's not about the life you've lived up to this moment. It's about God and his mercy. And God raised us up with Christ from a place of shame to a place of honor and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. In Jesus, you are a new creation. You have been brought out of slavery and death into a life of freedom from bondage and you never have to go back to that old way of living. You're a new creation now. You are free. And in Jesus, the things that have held power over us are losing their power all together. Let's pray. Jesus, we uh, come before you recognizing our own beauty in your eyes, that you would come and die for us, that you saw something in us, that you see something in us that that we don't even see in ourselves. You see our true self, so to speak. You see who we were intended to be, that image of God that sometimes is, is buried and and scarred and suffocating under the weight of of what we've experienced and what we walk in and and what the world has placed on our shoulders. And yet, as we uh, come into your presence, Jesus, we, uh, we don't experience condemnation, conviction perhaps, but the scriptures say there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't experience condemnation, We don't experience accusation. That's actually the voice of the enemy. And we condemn that voice and we silence it. And we come to stand before you, Jesus, at the foot of the cross. We come to be called back to who we are and and, and the ways in which we were intended to walk. We come to the cross so that we might receive a fresh start and new direction and new strength and new cleansing and new freedom and that we might know our real name as we stand in front of you, the one who made us. Thank you, Jesus, for providing a way for us to come to you, for providing a way that your righteousness might be poured out on the unworthy so that we can stand before you even in the presence 
of the condemning voice of the enemy, we can stand before you rooted in your righteousness and allow you to tell us who we really are. So we come to you now, Jesus, um, some of us simply rejoicing that we were in death and you've brought us to life. That before we even knew how to lift a finger to reach for life, you came and poured yourself out for your enemies. Some of us are, are just going to rejoice in that this morning, that we now walk in the life that you've made possible. Others of us, Jesus, feel the weight. We feel the weight of what we've done. Uh, we feel the weight of what's been done to us. And it, and it feels bigger than we are. And it's just simply not. So as we come to the cross, would we be reminded, God, we sing about your power and we sing about your healing and we say that you're Lord, but sometimes when we really feel the weight of it, we're not so sure. Would you come and remind us of who you are? Would you remind us that each one of us, in a sense, was that woman caught in adultery, dragged out so that the justice of the world might be laid upon her, and you were the one who came uh, to rescue and to save and to call out and, and to redeem and to remind her that she is not condemned and, and that there's a, there's a greater way to walk. There's better life to be had than what she was walking in before. Would you come whisper to us now, Jesus? Would you come and loosen uh, those bonds of slavery that some of us have, have placed on ourselves? What we want is you, Jesus, and what we desire is the freedom that you call us to. Would you come and work among your people now? In Jesus' name, amen.